On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, this is your old friend Dave Alvin, and right this moment, you are listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Pantheon Podcasts presents from Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you the devil's music. Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman of the Devil's Music Podcast. I'm a rock and roll witch, a lifelong punk rock maniac. I'm a multi-genre artist, a best-selling author, a writer, a performer. Some of you may already know me. Some of you may not know me. Others of you might even know me in the biblical sense. There could be a chance of that. Anyway, I've always been interested in the outre, the crazy, the out of the box, the wildest things imaginable from any century and any decade. I was lucky enough to have been a member or one of the proponents of the Los Angeles punk rock scene in the early 70s. I had a fanzine called Lobotomy. In the 80s, I had several bands and booked a lot of very significant clubs in Los Angeles, punk rock legendary clubs like Raji's and Cathay de Grand. I've been putting on shows since 1978, and it's continued right on up here 40 decades later. I still do that. I'm a belly dancer. I'm a burlesque dancer. I'm a tarot reader. And if you listen to my podcast, you're going to see that I'm an absolute lunatic. Love y'all. and love doing this. I hope you're enjoying it. So just a little bit of info. You can find The Devil's Music and all the Pantheon shows on SpotifyRadio.com and Pandora. Actually, if if you're into it, you can just go all OCD and look really hard. You'll find us on at least 40 different podcast networks. We're growing and growing. Everyone at Pantheon loves telling stories about the greatest moments of rock and roll in a variety of manners. You'll see what mine is like when you listen to it. There's something for everyone. So many shows, so many flavors, so little time to listen to all of them. Find it everything at PantheonPodcast.com.
Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to the Devil's Music Podcast. My guest today is Fayette Hauser, and we're doing part two of her interview because she has been at every imaginable countercultural moment in the 20th century, starting from the early 60s onwards. She's been through the East Village beatnik scene, the Warhol scene, the CBGB scene. Um, she was in the Coquettes in San Francisco during this during this the late 60s through the early 70s. And she has an amazing, beautiful coffee table book out about the Coquettes. She's um she was also really integral in the Los Angeles punk rock scene. She does everything, she knows everybody, and she's experienced things in her life that most of us will never even get to a fourth of. So here we go again um, with Fayette and part one left off when she had just met Tomato Duplenty in San Francisco in Haight-Ashbury. And he was later to become the lead singer of the famed Los Angeles punk group, The Screamers. Hi Fayette, how you doing? Hi Pleasant, I'm good. And you, are you good too? Yeah, you are. I'm good. I can't wait to hear these stories. So let's, um, we started when you had just barely met Tomato. You, you passed out on the window seat in the house that you, that you were um, living in and you woke up and you saw him sitting on the dining room table and you guys locked eyes and it was like an electric bolt going through you. So tell me, tell me what happened after that. Cause this is right about when the cockettes were ending, right? Oh, well, it was right before we went to New York. We were preparing for that big adventure. Now, the Kids had been doing shows in Seattle, and they came to, to San Francisco to show videos. And their videographer, who was really like the first, certainly counterculture, culture videographer, was Randy. Bla who became right, black, that's right, black Randy? Randy. Yeah. We talked about black this Randy. in episode one, and so then, right. and then he, he was really young. I mean, he was younger than us, and he had curly hair, and he was really sweet, and he was so eager, and he just filmed everything. So they had come to show the videos, and also we were about to do Pearls Over Shanghai, uh, and so they were in in that one too. It wasn't everyone, but it was a lot of them. So Tomato and I just were magnetized towards each other and and it was extremely romantic tomatoes such romantic and we fell in love and um so we had our romance going and then we were also performing in the coquette show and also at the same time hibiscus was doing because he didn't go to new york so he had reformed uh a new group, which he called the Angels of Light Free Theater, uh, which was the the name of his vision was the Angels of Light Free Theater. So he was living in a in a loft on Grove Street, and I was over there frequently as well. So that's where Tomato and I kind of had our the beginning blast off of our long years long uh, love affair at this three thirty. Grove Street loft. And the front part of the loft was a big 
performance area, like a cabaret. And Hibiscus called it the cabaret. And then in the back was where people lived. So Tomato and I were in the first cabaret show as well. Uh, and there's some footage of that too. So he and I are in that. Um, so yeah, I mean, our first date, you know, traders. so we uh, was to go see the devils, Ken Russell's The Devils. And uh, I don't know, we, you know, Catholic school kids, so we both loved it. But we were together all the time when they were there. And so then they, they went back to Seattle and we got ready to go to New York. And then Tomato wrote letters. I mean, he was magnificent letter writer and he would write on the back of the flyers so he would send me the flyers of what they were doing and tell me all about the shows and and he was just a fantastic letter writer so then I was getting packages and we were writing back and forth and so then comes the New York show so we go to New York bag and baggage um we each person and there was a there was like 25 core members of the group that went to New York plus extra people uh, other than the performers, but all the performers had their own steamer trunk. Um, and we were, we got totally dragged out to get on the plane. It was a, it was our maddest scene. So, so we were very intent on, on bringing the, the full on blowout game to New York. So there's a lot of footage and film and, and, photos of us in the airport all dragged out and then uh on the plane bud lee he, he was a time life photographer so he came along on the whole trip and he has fabulous pictures so so those are in the book and maureen orth was there too so um when we got to new york she wrote an article for the village voice which um yeah danny fields was <laughs> danny fields was our pr guy so he created an opening night that was like a record-breaking off-off-Broadway opening night where 3,000 people came to this funky fucking falling apart theater on the Lower East Side called the, uh, the Anderson Theater. And it had been like a Jewish, um, you know, whatever, Jewish theater. And Sylvia Miles says it was like the Jewish temple of theater, but it was... <laughs> really, really funky. Uh, but the stage was three times as big as the stage at the palace. And we had, you know, our sets were all cardboard, painted cardboard. And um, I I had been a big fan, like, oh, from the 60s of George Melies films and his sets would be flat and they would slide in and out um, like these early silent movies. And, you know, I just yeah, loved like, it. Yeah, those, that I know was what the idea. Yeah, yeah, that was the idea of the sets. They were painted and they were flats. And besides, that's all we could afford was cardboard. And John Flowers, uh, he was a painter and I was a painter, but he was the one who mainly did the sets. So we had put them in, like, we had slid them in these big cardboard boxes and flown them to New York, but they they were just, you know, dwarfed by this big stage. So, but meanwhile, Danny Fields had hyped hype the whole thing so much that everybody want and besides man this is 71 so you can imagine i mean the party scene was enormous it was just gigantic so when we got there it was one party after the next um so nobody wanted to rehearse everybody was madly getting dressed and going to the parties and 
there was a few of us who stayed back and did did the sets. So that was John and I and a few other people. So we had to redo the sets for uh, that stage. But um, so when we opened, it was a mistake not to have Hibiscus there because he had theater instincts that were perfect. And we had brought two shows. One was Tinsel Tarts in a Hot Coma, which was about old Broadway. And I, I always thought, no, you can't bring that to New York. It's like Coles to Newcastle. That's really stupid. But I was outvoted. Um, you know, there were queens with louder voices than mine. So I was completely like, you know, so, but we had another show called Pearls Over Shanghai, which was all original and it was really fabulous. So, but we opened with uh, Tinsel Tarts and the opening night was a huge kerplunk bomb of all time. I don't know if any, it, it was like record-breaking attendance and then the greatest bomb. <laughs> so it was a very visible uh you know, kerplop. And that's what the papers wrote about. So the critics never came back, but once, so we didn't do that again. So we, then we switched to Pearls Over Shanghai, which was a very beautiful show. And it had all original songs that were just incredible. So that's when all the underground people came, the artists, all the, the artists that were in the city all came. Rauschenberg was a big fan he paid all our salaries one week. He, he donated to the show and um, we had parties at his loft. He was so fabulous. So it, it was a culturally a hit and influential to the artists that were in New York, but it didn't, you know, make the papers again. So then all the time that I'm in New York, uh, Tomato and I are writing back and forth and I'm telling him all what's happening. And he's following it in the papers because it made national news. Um, so then I go back. I stayed a bit longer in New York with, you know, I, I stayed at my brother's apartment. It was Christmas. Uh, we were there. I think it was November that we were there. So then I just stayed on in New York. And so in January, they did a show. Scrumbly put together a show uh, called... Um, the stars of Paris. Late this, is, wait, this is still the Cockettes, right? Yeah, no, we were still going. This was okay. the beginning of 72. So, I mean, we still did more shows until we decided that it had reached its limit. Uh, so anyway, when I went back, it was, uh, we put together a sci-fi show called Journey to the Center of Uranus. And I did a like a slideshow of, I, I took pictures of all these like really ancient uh, astrological symbols and drawings of the stars and, and in black and white. And so I had this beautiful black and white slideshow that, that would play behind the performers. Um, and in doing that, you know, every time we did a show, I would stay up, you know, all night. So the first night of the show, um, I passed out. <laughs> I didn't make it to the show. And so we never saw the slideshow, but then we did it three times. So then the slideshow ran for the, uh, you know, the second and the third show. So um, then we did, we did Pearls Over Shanghai again and Link uh, wrote a third act. And every time we did uh, any show, even if we repeated it, it was always different. We were not into doing the same thing twice because that, 
you know, that was boring. And we always had to wear different things. And uh, we always had to mix it up. And we had to do it differently. So, um, and Sylvester was in the shows, uh, and he came to New York with us. And, and this is Sylvester. Let me just talk to the listeners that um, Sylvester is the one that um, he was a member of the Cockettes that became hugely famous in mainstream me- music around that time. Like you may, he you became may a disco real, diva. Mighty real, yeah, disco. Yeah, mighty yeah. real, yeah. And He's those in, songs still sound as fresh today, like as right. they did even then, you know? Right. Well, he, you know, I mean, whoever really was in the Cockettes, the Cockettes more or less galvanized you into your true persona so that, and that's, that's a, you know, you get to a, a, a classic point within yourself that's timeless. So that's, you know, Sylvester later on, they said, oh, because he was, of course, in all these flaming and fabulous outfits. And they would say, what are you? You know, there was no drag queens at that point. And he would go, I'm Sylvester. And I thought, yes, that's what you became in the Cockettes, because you really became, you went into yourself in a very fabulous way. And and you discovered who you were. So um, Sylvester came to us early on. And he had a fantasy. He was Billie Holiday. And he wanted to be on stage as Billie Holiday with a gardenia and a gorgeous gown. And we had, uh, our pianist was Peter Minton. And he had a, a massive collection of seven. Everybody's collected 78 records because they were all over the thrift shops. The Wiz Kids had a member called Diva La Loon, and he was a musicologist as well. So, um, oh, so their houses, which I'll get to, was all old music. And it was the same in the Cockett House. We were playing old 78 records along with, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin and all this other. I mean, so it was all of a bag. Okay, we are going to take a little musical break now to listen to some Sylvester, and then we'll be right back with Fayette Hauser. Well, for though you think I'm your angel from above, um, I'm just a jaded lady and you're a fool in love. Here we are back. That was awesome. That was Sylvester. Um, yeah, that was Sylvester singing. That was singing uh, "Jaded Lady" from Pearls Over Shanghai. It was written for him. Um, but when he sang in a show, it was a moment where I mean, the audience was always mad, screaming, and carrying on in the stage. It was all of a piece and very high energy. But when Sylvester stepped out to do his number, there was a hush because everybody loved him. And he was so gorgeous and such a beautiful musician that everyone wanted to hear every note. So he had a moment in every show that was completely his own. So when we went to New York, he he had 
everyone knew that he was on a personal trajectory into a magnificent career. And so he was not in our shows, but he uh, formed his hot band and he opened our shows. So it was Sylvester and his hot band. So we stayed in New York for, it seemed like it was almost a month, but um, then when everyone came back, then we were still doing shows. But after we did Pearls Over Shanghai, we did a show called Hot Greeks. And it was really kind of formal. It was scripted. And I don't know, Link and I, we thought it was too straight. I thought it was too, too much like theater. And some people in the group wanted that. They wanted to have scripts. They wanted to have like perfect moments. They wanted to rehearse. But I was definitely more into the experimental theater. And so was Link. There was a group of us that were totally into any a new kind of theater, which was what Hibiscus was into, so that you would make discoveries on the stage. And this was a concept that was created by John Vaccaro in that you had a setup. Mary Warnoff was involved in this so that you had a setup. Uh, you had a starting place and you would have whatever, however many people. I mean, we had a lot of people on the stage, but John Vaccaro would have anywhere from two to four people on the stage and it would start. But then where it went was the unknown. And that, you know, uh, Hibiscus was a part of that in New York before he came to San Francisco. So and I knew what he meant when he said that because I'd seen those shows. So that was the initial that was the core idea for the Cockettes was that every show was it was like an initiation into the unknown. And you brought your best a game into it. And you were full tilt involved into whatever was going on in the stage. So after Hot Greeks, um, these two factions kind of separated and everybody, there was a lot of people that really formed their own persona in a big way. John Rothermill had his own song style together and he wanted to do solo shows and Hibiscus had reformed the Angels of Light Free Theater and Tomata wanted me to come to Seattle and every letter that I got was, when are you coming to Seattle? So uh, I think it was, it wasn't, there, there were no tears. It, we were uh, on the stage and it was really, everyone could feel it. There was, it was just over and it was a very organic, um, there was an organic beginning and there was an organic ending. And so after that, I just, you know, packed up my trunk and went to Seattle. And so Tomato was living in a house called Savage Gardenias. They had they had Victorians on Capitol Hill, which is where all the hippies live. Oh, yeah. Capitol. You were saying that in the first episode that they all right. had like House of Leather and they all had like right. wild yeah. games. And they had, uh, what was another one called? Um, Sa no, Savage Gardenias and uh, Lavender Shadows. I always thought that was a great name. <laughs> so did you Lavender start Shadows. performing with the Whiz Kids at that time? Oh, yeah, immediately. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so, then when did you guys go back? When did you guys go to New York again? Like, was that? So this was the summer of 72. And so so we were performing with the WizKids. And all the New York underground artists wanted everybody to come back to New York and perform in New York with them, you know, with all the underground people. And um, so, you know, I was telling Tomato this. And so... By the fall, Tomato and I had decided to go to New York in 72. 
And we didn't take everything, like we didn't take our trunks because we didn't know if we were going to like it. We didn't know if we would survive in New York. So we went and we found a tenement on, God, uh, on Second Street, Second and Bowery. And we were on the top floor and across the street was the men's shelter. Um, I know exactly where that is because I used to live in, um, for the year of 1979, I lived on Bowery and Grand and, and taxis, taxis would not even go down there. (laughs) No, no, it was the Bowery. I it mean, was, it really well, that was, was the Bowery. Bowery. There's no Bowery anymore, but this is full tenements. I know this was like tenements. anybody that's been to New York lately. You can't imagine what this no. was like. Oh, oh my God! What what the Bowery looks like down there is just incredible. I and was disoriented the last time I went down there. Lined I up. Like, I was like, "Wait, where are we?" And then I was like, "Oh, we're we're like this is <laughs> right. like Bowery and Houston. What? Like what?" <laughs> Right. And, and John Varvatos is where Oh my God, John Varvatos, my Lord. And he has the whole wall under plexiglass. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that part's amazing. That, that yeah. part's fantastic. And but then, so- yeah, and he sells, well, because um, this was about, I don't know, a year or two before Arturo died. Whenever I would go back to New York, I would see Arturo. So, but anyway, so we move into that, that building on Second Street. Right okay, we should have a little break here and then we'll oh, okay. get right back because I want to hear all, uh, we're going to hear all this crazy stuff about early CBGB shenanigans and just crazy stuff that you guys are not going to believe. I saw you standing on the corner. You look so big and fine. I really wanted to go out with you. So when you smiled, I laid my heart on the line. Alrighty, we're back with Bayad Hauser. Okay, continue talking, babe. We're talking like pre-punk rock, punk rock, wild theater right now. Right. So um, we had we had two apartments. You know, these were the tenements where the bathtub is in the kitchen, and we got two flats. It was a city-owned building, and so they were fifty dollars a piece. The apartments. So we got two apartments at the end of the hall and we busted through the wall and we never really created a door. It was always just like <laughs> jagged wood. And it was like, just, a, like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Like oh yeah, they- you know, I mean, none of us were carpenters for heaven's sakes, you know, so we just, <laughs> and so we just hung a 40s curtain over it. I mean, what <laughs> yeah, just make, it, make it nice, make yeah. it all nice. <laughs> yeah, really, you drape it. You don't need anything else, really. <laughs> so, so Tomato and I lived on one side, and some of the other whiz kids lived on the other side. Uh, Screaming Orchids was over there, and then uh, different different cockettes and and uh, whiz kids would come, and they would live on the other side. Uh, John Flowers came, and he lived there. And so Tomato and I, I mean, the Bowery, the Bowery was all bums 
you know. I was just going to say when Kid Congo and Kid Congo and I were living there in in like the late seventies, it was still all bums. Yeah, I mean, like, but but everyone called them bums. They weren't even called homeless. Oh no, they were not. No, these were like tramps. They were classic eccentric bums. Yeah, exactly, exactly. These were people who were, you know, tramps and bums. And, yeah, and the men's shelter was a huge building, and so they would sleep there at night. And there was one bum that you know he would he would bend over and drum on the street. You could tell he'd been a musician. I mean, and, and gotten a little too whacked out. So, and I used to always see him, and oh, there's the drummer, you know. So, Tomato and I would walk around, you know. So we would walk down Bowery to Houston and go wherever, and and. And Soho was really just beginning. People were living in lofts, but it really hadn't gotten she-she at all yet. I know, um, that was decades later, yeah. Yeah. So one day, and so right away, Tomato and I tried to find, we were looking for small theaters with a stage so that we could perform. And we found one, I can't remember what the name of it, but it was like a, a nightclub. It was a tiny little cafe, cabaret, run by this older guy, it must have been like a beatnik hangout. And then it had a second room that had a little stage. So we said, perfect, can we do a show? So I'm, I missed one part. When I first got there, there was a, a guy that was part of the John Waters group, uh, Stephen Buteau, and he had a loft on J Street. And that it was really industrial down there, but he had a huge loft. So that was kind of the way station. When you first got to New York, you would stay with Stephen Buteau and then you got your own place. So, so I, I knew, you know, the, the John, we were all friends with the John Water family. So the first show that we did, Tomato and I, it was called There's Egypt in Your Dreamy Eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, some of the John Waters people were in it. So then, okay, so one day we're walking down the street and Hilly is sweeping the sidewalk, just like you see in the- This is Hilly Crystal, the long CBGBs, Hilly Crystal. No, it wasn't. It was, it oh. was called Hilly's and it, that's the awning said Hilly's still, but he, so we started talking to him and, and he said that he was reopening, you know, he, he had to reform because he didn't pay his taxes. He was a rebel. <laughs> and it, you know he wanted to support artists and not pay taxes so he had to reform the business so that's when he changed the name to CBGB's CBGB's in 1972 right that was 72 okay. yeah like the the fall of 72 it was really towards the end of the year right. and um i mean the the awning didn't really change i think until the following year you know 73 or something so Tomato and I started doing shows there and we did one called Love Dames Die Hard and um, that was another one. Um, I don't know. We did, a, we did a bunch of shows there because it was such a great place and people started coming and then the musicians started coming and uh, Talking Heads started there. Uh, what Blonde. year was that? This is like 70. This is 72 going into 73. Um, so talking about the stilettos, what? Oh, so this was pre Blondie Deborah Harry and the stilettos, right? Right, okay, yeah. Um, so all 73, we were doing shows there, and also this woman named Shayla Bekel, 
she she wanted to do a, re a review that would involve all the underground artists that were in New York. And we were right across the street from the Bowery Lane Theater, which was one of, it's the, probably the oldest vaudeville theater in Manhattan. Yeah. Really, I mean, the, the the facade of the building is historical, but I think they've put condos in there. It's so disgusting. And it was a gorgeous theater too. It was huge. And it had the entire basement were dressing rooms. It was quite fabulous. So she put this show together called the Palm Casino Review. And this was by now, it was like spring, summer, 1973. And everyone was invited to be in it and you could do whatever you wanted. And um, so we each had like Tomato and I had a, had an act and then he would do a solo act. John Flowers had a solo act. I had a girl band called Savage Vaginas. Uh, so <laughs> we could do all these different things. And it was so, it was very, very popular. Um, and it went for two years. It went, for, uh, not all year, but. It was had a seat, it had two seasons. So when, there's when two posters. Guys, when did you, I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but when did you guys meet the Ramones? Okay, um, so okay, in wait, let, let's take a let's take a little musical break and then we'll okay. then I want to hear about this, like the early, early Ramones. Okay. talking about the early days of CBGBs. So uh, I, I think this was, I can't remember whether it was in, must have been 74 by now, because we, we had a show called Savage Voodoo Nuns, and we did it a few times at CBGBs. And I think the last time we did it was in uh, like the spring or summer of 74, and so Gorilla Rose, he was from the Whiz Kids, and he had come to New York to perform with us. And um, he went to the sound check because there was going to be a new band. So he went to the sound check and he came back to the house and he said, "Oh, you're not going to believe who's playing. It's this band from Queens, from you know Long Island or Queens or somewhere, but they're called the Ramones." They're all called the, the Ramones and you just will not believe what they sound like. He was so enthusiastic about it. He was mad for them. So we were pumped and um, Blondie had also formed. And so they were on the bill too. So um, that was their first show. That was the first show of the Ramones. And, wow. Uh, yeah. And I immediately brought Dee Dee home. <laughs> I was literally- <laughs> Hey, it's Dee Dee home. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah brought him home. And then um, the day after was Saturday and we had a date. Because you had a date with Didi? Yeah. He, he had like a whole thing. He even explained it to me that this was what he had a whole thing about. This is how you go on a date. You know, so we went on this proper date. 
<laughs> my mouth is just hanging open. Do tell. Like, what space yeah. did you guys get to? Their no, show, you know, their show was so outside and they, they looked incredible. And then we go on this date. I was very perplexed, I must say. But we went to Central Park and we had like a day in Central Park. And it was, you know, it was really fun, but it was so, I thought it was, it, it was very um, proper. He was a proper gentleman, you know, he was like a proper gentleman. And um, anyway, so, so, so this, that, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, well, this explains why, like when I was at um, one of many monumental screamers parties in the, in the late seventies at the screamers house, the Wilton Hilton, that when the Ramones and Blondie came to town and were doing like a week long residency, with Blondie opening for the Ramones at the Whiskey, which I was at every night with everyone in the whole punk scene. And of course you were there, but like, we couldn't figure out like us. us they were staying at the Tropicana. Oh, I know, I know that, we knew that. But I mean, we, we couldn't figure out how you guys knew the, um, the Ramones and Blondie because we knew, because Tomato and Gear were very, um, they were very selective about the information that they gave to, to us as teenagers. And I actually have- like, That was have, gear. That was gear. No, no, gear. But I mean, also, Tomato taught me how to screen phone calls and so did gear. They were, they, were, <laughs> they were teaching me all this stuff. And I used to cut school to go to you guys' house, the Screamers house. And I would just sit there and like, I was really quiet. And now you know me for decades and you know, I'm not quiet, but I was just like, I couldn't believe this. Like, I never even heard of screening calls. Also, they taught me what a French exit was, like how to, how to crash a party, how to leave a party, how to make long distance illegal phone calls on credit oh, cards. Man. I mean, that was big. All that of this, big. But I thought that you guys all came from Seattle. I knew nothing about the New York thing. So I couldn't figure out how you guys knew the Ramones and Blondie, you know what I mean? And because oh, it was all from the early days of CBGB. Yeah. Oh, yeah. but meanwhile, okay. So that summer, uh, this was like, yeah, the summer of uh, 74, we had met this guy, Joey Freeman, and he was a videographer too. And so Gorilla Rose wrote for this um, newspaper. It was a, a softcore porn magazine called The Naked News. And Tomato and I, uh, you know, because they were going to pay us, we did a, a column in the Naked News and it was called Hollywood Spit. And it was a gossip column and he would be on the East Coast and I was on the West Coast. And we had photo booth pictures of us holding telephones and the, we, we would take bags of drag to 42nd Street to the uh, Playland there because they had three fantastic old Italian photo booths. So we would decorate the photo booth and then, you know, take these pictures. So we had those pictures in the Naked News and we had a whole fake gossip column with made up shit. So then <laughs> when we met Joey Freeman, he said, let's, let's do a video called Hollywood Spit. My God, it would be fabulous. So it was August because it was so hot. It was boiling hot. So we would do it at night on the roof of Joey's loft. And Chris Stein did the sound because Chris and Joey were friends from high school. So, and this was pre-Blondie. So um, anyway, so we did that video, which of course has now, I call, you know, it's gone down the, 
and what I call the drug drain. You know, it's <laughs> just the same as Randy's video. All the great work that we did in the 70s has all vanished because people get evicted or they're too high and, and the landlord dumps the stuff or whatever. Yeah. So those things are lost, which is a terrible shame. Hollywood spit was fabulous. So we put it on public access. It was on public access. And then we drove, uh, Joey got a driveaway car. It was a white Lincoln Continental. And, and five of us drove to LA to put it on uh, LA, you know, public access. So anyway, yeah, that's how we met them. So how did you guys, how did you guys wind up in LA? Like let's, let's skip to that. Sorry, because we, I mean, I, I, I hope that I hope that all this stuff gets into the Smithsonian about your life because it's just so, or no, the library of Congress. Library. Um, so when did you guys move into the Wilton Hilton, the Screamers house? So we went back to New York from LA. We went back to LA to get our stuff because we loved it in New York. So we went to get our trunks. Uh, actually, this is 73, I remember, because, okay. So we got our trunks and we brought it back to New York. So, uh, you know, 73 and 74, it's kind of mushy. But so you'll excuse me if I make a few errors in that direction. But so we went back, but um, I got into some like dope concerns, a little problems. And so we were, so we were living in different places at the time. And I was living with John Flowers and Sweet Pam in a loft. The loft below us was Arturo, Jaime and Miguel. So it was in that building. So Jaime, they were all artists from Mexico. And, and Jaime said, well, let's, let's go to Mexico. You know, let's get away. Let's go on a trip. So Jaime, John Flowers and I, we went to Mexico and we ended up staying there for three months. And then we went to Guatemala for three months. So I was gone for six months to get a grip on things. And Tomato went back to Seattle when I left New York. He went back, he left and went back to Seattle. So when I came back to New York, my brother had founded the Manhattan Transfer, which Tomato and I worked with them. He had started the group before we had left. And he and I worked with them. I I did costumes for them and, and Tomato and I wrote stage patter for them. But while I was gone, they had played all over New York in small clubs and they had come out to the coast to do this Mary Tyler Moore special. And it was a big hit. And they were managed by Aaron Russo, who was uh, Bette Midler's manager. And so they were asked to do a four-part summer series, which is a thing that they don't do it anymore. Yeah, it's, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, shows go on hiatus. And so they had a four-part summer series. So they wanted me to come and be a writer on the show because they said, well, you know, the, the writers from CBS are going to be too straight. And I didn't know whether to leave New York or not. I really didn't want to go to LA, but you know, they were so, come on, we got a truck, trunks going up. Come on, we got the trunk, trunks going on the truck. So I thought, well, if I don't like it, I'll leave, um, go back to San Francisco or something. So that was the summer of 75. And so I went off to, and Tomato was in Seattle anyway. So I went off to LA and <clears throat> did this show for CBS for the entire summer. 
So during, you know, after I was calling him because LA, it wasn't like it is now, of course. We, we all lived at the Mediterranean village uh, in, in uh, WeHo. Um, it's, it's this, I don't know, apartment building. And Janice and I had, an, had, had a, a suite or something, a two bedroom apartment. And the whole group lived in the Mediterranean village. And I would go out to take a walk in the street the sidewalk would end, you know, and I was like, I was, so I was calling Tomata every night. There was a telephone in the garage because I had like, like you said, you know, I had like a fake phone credit card, you know, to call. Yeah, everybody, everybody did. Yeah, everybody everybody. Had that. yeah, well, once you found one, all you needed were the numbers. So then people yeah. would pass around the numbers, totally. you know, it would be some corporate card. How are they ever going to get, you know, it was a grant. Yet another artist's grant yeah. you know, that we were able to find. So, so who, wait, who found the Wilton Hilton though? Was it Tomato and Gear or did you find it? Because the, no, Tomato, Tomato and Gear found it, I think. Yeah. And that I'm not um, exactly sure who found it, but it's a bed oh, no, before, no, before they were living there, I know that uh, some of the GTOs were living yeah. there. Yeah, and wasn't there like there was a Satanist cult or some kind of witch group? Because there was a circle on the floor of Gear's room. Do you remember that? Yes, and also Miss Christine overdosed in that house. Oh no way! I didn't know that. Yes, wow. Yes. And then hadn't it been built? This is this is what Tomato told me that it was it was originally a love nest for um, Marion Davies and. Um, and uh, God, um, what was the real name of the guy that was Citizen Kane? Orson um, Welles. Her, no, Hearst. It oh, was Hearst. William Randolph Hearst. Oh, William very Randolph possible. Yeah, yeah, because it was it was from the it was a twenties arts and crafts building. Yeah, that house was so haunted. Like, yeah, it was it was really haunted. On the episode that I did with Kid Congo when he was living there. Um, we were talking about how insanely haunted it was. And oh my um, God, yeah. I have stories of it. So did you ever see any any ghosts there or anything? I saw Miss Christine. You did? Oh my oh God. Oh my God. She sat on the edge of the bed and we had a whole big conversation. Wow. Yeah. And then and then um so the Wilton Hilton was, you know, not only was it the Screamers house, that's you guys called it the Wilton Hilton, but everyone, right. all of us kids in the punk scene just called it the Screamers house. I mean, some people called it the Wilton Hilton, but we just knew it as like, you know, the Screamers house. And um, well, I didn't want to stay in L.A. I mean, I, I hated it. It was so straight here. It was just unbelievably straight. But you guys had that house. That house was just unbelievable. You well, like, right. And so I was calling. And like the Avengers, everyone that was anybody in punk rock would, would drop by. Yeah, but by it wasn't. No, I'm go. trying to say it wasn't really like that until, you know, I would call Tomato in, in Seattle and say, I'm, I'm leaving. It's horrible here. It's so straight. I can't stand it. I'd cry on the phone. And he would say, don't leave. Don't leave. Uh, I'm coming. Uh, we're coming. We formed this group. We're coming. Don't leave. So then when he came and the Wilton Hilton formed, that's when the whole scene changed and they, a scene became, you know, it was like the, the seed of what became the punk scene in LA because shortly after that, uh, Brendan created the mask 
And then there was places to play. I mean, then it became like an underground art scene. Uh, but there wasn't one when I first got there. And so no, I know that we, we were all just going to we were going to like gay juice bars before punk rock, because that was the only places that would because none of us had IDs. We were all like right. gay juice bars. Oh, my God. Gay juice bars or the Rocky Horror Show where you could, you know, fuck people right. and buy all sorts of drugs in the bathroom. Right, no one the went to the movie. I mean, there was like yeah, five people there throwing toast at the screen and the rest was, um, we should take a little break and then we'll talk more about the Wilton Hill thing. Okay. with Faye Hauser, and now we're talking about um, the Screamers House and the um, late 70s punk scene in Los Angeles, which was ground zero for it was the Screamers House. Yeah, you were mentioning yesterday about how open the house was and anyone could come in. And that was the way it was in San Francisco, the way it was in Seattle. So that was, we were accustomed to that. And we were accustomed to having younger people come in and it was like our duty to to teach them, you know what I mean? To educate, uh, to create other artists. So the Wilton Hilton was really active in that way. And there was room for everybody, just like in the houses in San Francisco. I remember when Kid first came, he, he his room was the, the walk-in closet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at Disgraceland, at my punk house, Disgraceland, we had people living in our giant walk-in closet too, which was... <laughs> I know. Closets are definitely a room. Well, they're bigger. Like this is a huge closet behind me because this is a 20s building. Yeah. And you can sleep in there. It's big enough. Yeah. Incredible. Meaning to the words in the closet. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, So how did you guys know the Avengers? Like did Tomato know them or did they just like, I mean, how did, how did, that happened and you had like people from England like from the English punk scene and San Francisco punk scene did did you guys know the nuns too or oh absolutely everybody knew everybody else I mean you know this was it was the underground scene I mean nobody was a mainstream artist so you just knew everybody no Um, I knew people too but I just couldn't Avengers. I just couldn't figure out how people knew each other. Do you know what I mean? Because I thought, you know, like I didn't know. It was the same way everywhere. People of like mind would gravitate together and they would come. I mean, Penelope Houston was from Seattle. And so Tomato knew her in Seattle. When she was a kid too, because she's like my age. Right. When she formed the Avengers, she eventually, you know, came to LA. Um, but she formed the Avengers in Seattle. So Tomato knew her from a long time ago, but whoever, you know, the thing is whoever came to town, somebody would end up sleeping at the Wilton Hilton because um, those artists 
you know, you would recognize each other for God's sakes. We all had our, our look together. And so you would, you would know, I mean, they would look at you from the stage and you would know who to, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I don't know. People don't have that today, but in those days it was like the way that someone looked was like you immediately knew that they had your same frame of reference. Well, yeah, it was the signifier was uh, how you looked and, and you, it was the, uh, outward expression of your inward persona. And uh, you really gussied it up. I mean, we dressed every day, didn't we? Just yeah, like we in did. Seattle. In Seattle, we did it too. When I was there with Tomato, we got dressed up every day and went thrift shopping, you know? I mean, the thrift shopping in Seattle was outside. It was so incredible. Every, um, every, everywhere was because people didn't right. even know what vintage, it wasn't even called vintage. It was old right. clothes. You could it get was old like clothes and nobody yeah. wanted it because they all, you know, the mainstream wanted new and they had their big hair and their, you know, courage or their very straight pussy bow glasses, which I fucking hate those blouses they're yeah, so or like awful. french jeans and meanwhile oh, the rest of us right. were looking for like black garter belts and bullet bras so we could look like we came out right. of true detective or or like 30s clothes so we could look like you know lupe Vela right. or jean harlow like ODing or something <laughs> <laughs> now la was uh i mean la the garbage picking was old movie star stuff it totally be, i have i have dresses oh my from, from like studio sales that i still have that were like i thought they were like quote quote really expensive they were like it was like three dollars for like uh, yeah i found like a tuxedo jacket at the children's thrift on sunset that was across from the children's hospital yeah. and for like a show that I was doing and it had huge shoulders, but this tiny waist and it was so beautifully made. And I got it for $5 and did the show and everything. And a year later, I looked inside, inside the inner pocket and it said, Gene Kelly. And yeah, it was from singing in the rain. You know, when they, when it, when the, when the movie opens, the first scene is when they're going to uh, a premiere and they get out of the car and they're, you know, he and his, his whatever, um, they're on the red carpet and he's in a tuxedo. And that's the, tux- that was the tuxedo, you know, oh his wife God. gave away his clothes, whatever. And it ended up at the children's thrift. That was, and there were so many eight by 10 glossies. Tomato would bring home bushels of them, of you know, the movie star stuff, because you know, nobody was really collecting yet. No, there was so much movie star stuff. Like on, oh, on my the God. East Coast, it was Victorian stuff that you could get for nothing. And out right. here, it was like mid, it was like mid-century or like 30s through early 60s of just pristine stuff that was all the studios were throwing away. It was the stuff that didn't wind up in like Western costume or something. They, right. Yeah. But right. so and then Western if, costume would have sales. What do, yeah, <laughs> oh, I know. I got lots oh of stuff. What do you what do you remember about the early LA punk scenes or or the like the parties at the Wilton Hilton? Because I remember like like insanity. Like the parties were great, but they were just an extension of you know the parties from New York and from from everywhere. You know, yeah, from for, San for you, it was the same thing. That was you know, for you, but I hadn't experienced yeah. stuff like that. Before. I know, I, did, I know. It was, yeah, those parties to me were like that movie, The Party. 
with Peter Sellers. You know what I mean? Peter Sellers, I love that movie. You could just, you could look in any room or all four corners of a room and there was some kind of insane scene going on. Right, right. I always like the party and blow up. Oh yeah, blow up for sure. What do you remember about the mask? Because I mean, I'm just wondering. Oh my God, the mask is incredible. Yeah, the mask was incredible right from the beginning. Uh, And at one point, you know, Randy, when I moved here, the first person before Tomato came here, Randy came here. Yeah, and we're talking and, about Black Randy again. Just Black to Randy, yeah. Everyone. And he would, um, you know, I had to, I hadn't had a car. I don't know. I never had a car in San Francisco or New York or anything. I, you know, learned how to drive when I was 17, but I'd never had a car. But then when I got here, I had to get a car. And I got this Javelin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it was a V had a V eight engine, and it was turquoise metallic, and it had bucket seats that were so low your ass was on the pebble ground, and you know. So I would drive around, and Black Randy would get so scared because I like I tend to drive fast, <laughs> and you know. Then sometimes I would have to pump the brakes to get the brakes to stop. Tomato called it the death machine, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, passengers got scared and I you know I thought that was a good thing but so Randy came here before they did um so he was hip to the man I mean we were hip to the mask right in the way everybody was waiting for that you know yeah, the, fir- the first night before it even opened I was there and I don't even remember how I knew about it and Jane right. Weedlin, Jane Weedlin was there too because I told her about it because I met her at Granny Takes a Trip like the boutique right. on Sunset when we were both trying to sell t-shirts. Right, right. We were eyeing each other like competition. And then <laughs> right. like she couldn't believe there was like someone that was an actual punk in LA. And and I told her <laughs> that there was a whole punk scene and that was how we met. Right. And then yeah. Next thing you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. The mask was amazing. Um, oh, yeah. So Randy... There was an author that came to town. He he was a famous British author uh, named Trevor Ravenscroft. And he wrote this book called The Spear of Destiny, which um, it's like this historical book about uh, this spear, which is like a magical, um, it is a real thing. It's the spear that pierced the side of Christ and it has magical properties. And whoever like, like Alexander had it and to conquer the world. Anyone who wants to conquer the world finds and acquires the spear of destiny and Hitler had it. So, but now it's in a museum, but anyway. Oh, I was going to say, I thought someone in the LA punk scene had it, like tomato. (laughs) (laughs) No, so the author comes to town and uh, via, via, Janice Siegel is that how that happened. But meanwhile, by this time I have a Mustang, a red Mustang. And um, so I always end up like driving them around town in the Mustang. And so there I'm with Trevor Raisman's Croft and, and we're talking all this esoteric shit. And uh, it, it ends up, I took him to the mask and Randy was there too. So he loved it. I mean, the guy was in his 70s by then, uh, at least. Yeah, he was like, yeah, well into his 70s. Um, white hair and everything. But he fucking loved it. Stayed the whole night. And he said, you know, this really is exactly like Berlin in the 20s. That's what he said. <laughs> wow. That's <laughs> yeah. amazing. Um, Let's take a little break. 
Okay, so now tell me when, um, tell me when um, Tomata and you guys moved or, or, you know, the Wilton Hilton kind of broke up. Well, the Wilton Hilton, I think the landlord uh, had enough or there was some cataclysmic event. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but Tomata and Gear moved into a loft above Swenson's off Hollywood Boulevard, sort of uh, in the middle of Hollywood Boulevard. It, yeah, that was right. You know, that was right near. Boulevard. It, was, it was right near the biker bar called The Roost where I had right. my, um, right. you know, like where that was around the corner from this Graceland and Hollywood Boulevard then was not what it is. It was not gentrified at all. No, it was old <laughs> funky. Yeah. It was funky. And they tomato loved the, uh, the snow white cafe. Do you remember yeah. that? So what, yeah. what, what went on in that loft with tomato? So that was, I thought those parties were more wild because that's when the screamers were happening and yeah. they would have rehearsals in the, in the loft as well. But the parties were off the fucking charts, man. And tomato sometimes people had, had children and tomato would babysit these children. And because he was, children loved him. He was absolutely incredible. Of course he was like a child. He was, he was great so with I, everyone. He was the first yeah. person that ever brought me to a bar when I was like, <laughs> when I was 17. <laughs> and he was oh, yeah. me the whole time. And he, he actually told me, he like sort of batted his eyelashes at me. And, and he goes, oh, you look like you're getting stinko. And then, and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then I was just in the bar dancing and he was like swooning. And he goes, Pleasant, you dance like the boudoir. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, we were way into the dime novels. And so a lot of the dialogue that we did when we did our little sketches or skits in in New York, in, wherever we did them, they, the dialogue, we would pick it out of a dime novel. We would like write it exactly like the dime oh, novel when oh, we did because we yeah. that old moldy stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he was babysitting some child and the child fell asleep in one of these beanbag chairs and the party started and it erupted into a huge party. And the entire time this kid is sleeping in this beanbag chair. And finally the parents show up and they just like started partying with the rest of them. And then they just picked up the kid and went home. It was really, uh, it was, it was a, a way of life that I wish had gone on forever. Yeah. Except we might all be dead. Okay. <laughs> Right. At some point, yeah, you had to get off that. No, I mean, those days were just like amazing for anybody that like, you know, wasn't born until decades after like the L.A. punk scene or the New York. It was was creative. It was so creative. There was no hang up about. First of all, there was no hang up about having to make money because uh, people were able to make money easily to afford these kind of low rent places that we got that the that you know suburban people didn't want to live in, just like in San Francisco, Seattle, and here as well. Yeah, everywhere. So we had time. We had the gift of time to be able to develop our art, which is what people now, uh, you know, 
the corporate rule has stolen the time of children That's uh, exactly because the most creative time is in your 20s. And now they go right into, uh, you know, the corporate screen and they, you know, I think people, children don't get to develop their creative sensibility on their own. Um, no, it's all, and, and, you know, the minute someone does, it gets like, um, you know, they're immediately like co-modified. Yeah. Then, yeah. then it becomes a, a, an ad, a product selling device. Okay. So but, speaking of commodities. Yes. <laughs> um, product. Yes. Yeah, product and commodities. Um, yes. Tell everyone, um, I mean, your website is on the, this episode description, but um, Fayette has written an incredible, beautiful coffee table book with so many insane photos about the coquettes. And then you have another um, story. Right, that, book that book, yeah, that book is came out uh, right, smacked right into the COVID so that I didn't get to do my book events. But I think that once the veil of, uh, you know, the virus veil lifts, I will be able to go on with an exhibition here at the LGBT Center and other book events and also book events in San Francisco. So the book is called The Coquettes, Acid Drag and Sexual Anarchy, 1969 to 1972. And uh, it's everywhere. You can get it on Amazon, on, on Barnes and Noble. Or you it's, can get it from your website autographed, right? Right. I have a site, a book site called yeah. thecockets.net and uh you can yeah, we'll, we'll put all that we'll put all that in the in the episode right. description so tell everyone what the next um what so you, i what have another story, I have story yes uh, i have a story and this is a story about san francisco in an anthology called the end of the golden gate and it's a chronicle books anthology uh, 24 authors are in it and they all write stories about San Francisco and it's coming out this coming June. So there'll be more opportunities to do book events. And I love the live events because you get to talk to people and, and do slideshows and it's really fun. So this is, I've missed that a lot this year, going out and being with people. Yeah. That's what I'm really looking forward to. So Me too. I think everybody is. We're all like, oh, yeah. I feel like we're in virtual reality now. But um huh. anyway, yeah, and I'm in a crazy one. I, I'm I'm in a crazy virtual reality. Because I end up talking to myself here. I mean, there's nobody else to talk to. And but listen, but all the all the stuff you say is so fabulous. How can you not be endlessly entertained? Anyway, you guys, right. this was like the amazing Fayette Hauser, and I'm telling you. These interviews with her not, don't even come close to scratching the surface. You definitely <laughs> have to check her out on social right. media. You have to look at her website. Um, I'm I'm sitting here with my mouth open, floored because I thought she I thought she was cool since I was met her when I was 17. But now I'm hearing all this like stuff that just sounds like I mean, if this was a movie, no one would believe it. And and, and I mean, like. Just like I look back on my life sometimes and I don't believe it, that's what Fayette's entire life is. I'm sure she doesn't believe it. So, <laughs> anyway. oh, I tried to keep it up as long as I could. Definitely. Well, you're still you're still going strong, babe. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Fayette. Thank you, Pleasant Princess right. Farhana. I love you so much. I love you too. Mwah. Mwah. Bye, everybody. See you next episode. 
Bye. The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.